This is Love, Recovery, and Rock and Roll, a podcast dedicated to stories and helpful information about recovery from substance abuse. My name is Amy. And I'm Chris. And you can find us on the web at www.loverecoveryrr.com. All our episodes are available there, as well as some great information and, and just some corny quotes, too. Corny. They're great. Most of the ones I put are. <laughs> well, today we're delighted to have Marianne France, and we know her personally, uh, not just as a clinician. She is currently the clinical director of outpatient services at Turning Point, and at one time was Chris's therapist for day treatment. And I believe we at least did one or two sessions, three sessions with you. Yeah, I remember going a couple times um, for a couple's counseling, and it was so very helpful. I highly recommend anybody who has a loved one going into treatment to go and attend uh, individual uh, couples, family group sessions. They are so helpful. Uh, Mary Ann, is a CMHC. Did I get that correctly? That's correct. Excellent. Tell us what that is and tell us about what you do at Turning Point. So a CMHC is a clinical mental health counselor. So it's a master's level counselor. So we have to get a master's degree to get the letters. Um, I right now I'm the clinical director of outpatient services, like you mentioned. And that means I'm over the day treatment program, the IOP or intensive outpatient program, and um, also kind of have some, my hand in the aftercare and the alumni stuff a little bit, too. And so, how long have you worked at Turning Point? I've been there over five years. I can't remember exactly. Um, yeah, but almost five and a half, actually. And love it. Love my job. It's the best thing ever. That's so wonderful. And you've been so helpful to us personally. So thank you for coming and being on our podcast. Yeah, big part of my recovery. I want to thank you very much for all that you've done for me in uh really helping me begin to rebuild trust in my own relationship. You were a big part of that. So thank you. Well, I appreciate that. It's been my pleasure, my honor, frankly. Um, I feel very honored to be able to work with people who are in recovery and struggling with substance use disorders. So, And I think as clients of yours, we can really feel your dedication and honor uh, within your job. You really do help a lot of people. And the takeaways we get from the group sessions and from the individual counseling has just been priceless. And today we're going to talk about some things that Chris and I learned through some of the group and individual counseling, uh, specifically focusing on communication, which is critical For everyone, this isn't just for folks in recovery and family and loved ones of those in recovery. I think this is just a great takeaway for anybody, and it applies to our interpersonal communications that we have with our loved ones and with friends within the workplace, and really just how we can effectively speak to each other and convey meaning and feelings in a healthy way. So tell us, what does healthy communication look like (laughs) or sound like? (laughs) (laughs) That's probably a better way to put it. Um, And that's a great question. And I like the way you introduced that, just that it's not just for people in recovery and families, but it's for everybody. I think everybody could benefit from um, looking at how they communicate with others and, you know, seeing if it's effective or not. Um, 
Before I go into healthy communication, though, I'd actually like to talk a little bit about some of the ways that we don't communicate quite as well, or maybe unhealthy communication, if that's okay. That sounds great. It's your show. (laughs) That's your show. Um, Okay, so... When I'm doing this presentation for family groups, I talk a lot about, um, I, I, like I said, I jump first into the unhealthy styles of communication. So one of them is aggressive. So when you think of aggressive communication, what kinds of things might you think about? I think of tone. Often it becomes very loud or harsh, demanding. Yeah, absolutely. And bullying, basically verbal bullying is what I what comes to my mind. Yeah, it can look like a lot of things. And, and keep in mind when we're talking about communication, we're not just talking about words, right? We're also talking about the nonverbal things, mm-hmm. you know, like, like you said, the tone, the body stance even. So somebody who might be posturing or getting in your space a little bit, that definitely can be aggressive, right? Mm-hmm. Definitely. And if you had those kinds of experience with aggressive communication, how does that feel? I retreat. I don't like it. I either shut down or I try to change it. Oh, come on. Let's, you know, let's take it down a level. And I tend to lash back. Okay. I tend to feed into it. Yeah. And then there's a lot of different things that people, that's two kind of opposite ways. And I'm kind of more along what Amy does. I kind of retreat and I'm like, I'm not talking about this if you're going to be act like that with me. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. So then the next one I want to talk about is passive. So kind of the opposite of aggressive, right? What would that one do you think would look like? I think that is often not communicating. If I'm going to be passive, I might just shut down and not answer a question or not engage in a conversation. Okay, good. Yeah, I don't know anything about passive. <laughs> <laughs> so let me explain it a little bit. Um, sometimes when I think about passive, I think of maybe a little bit of um, whatever. I, I'll just do whatever you want. Um, you know, where are we going to dinner? Oh, I don't care. You choose. Even though deep down you're kind of like going, oh, please pick this. Please pick this place. Oh, I you know? do know all about passive. <laughs> <laughs> um I think of somebody who maybe just allows himself to get walked on a little bit. And that has to do with boundaries a little bit too, right? But um, you, yeah, maybe just not talking at all is another way too. Okay. So then there's our really favorite one, passive aggressive. Definitely my favorite. <laughs> you see both the passive and the aggressive in it, obviously. But um, what do you think of when you think of passive aggressive? Do you guys have any ideas? I'll go. Please do. (laughs) (laughs) Like, uh, so someone, you know, irritates you or upsets you. And instead of addressing it directly with them, perhaps you start talking to the pet and saying, oh, somebody's really mean and ornery today. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like you know a little bit about that. (laughs) That's I see passive aggressive behavior, especially in in today's world, a lot. Uh, Just people. You know, it, with some sarcasm thrown in. Absolutely. Sarcasm is a huge thing. Um, and it's like uh, eye rolls are kind of I a... I hate eye rolls. Okay. That's a that's a I body language. Them. You'll have a teenager here coming up in a decade, so you know yep. used to it. Yep. Teenagers are really good at passive-aggressive communication. That's for sure. So what's the similar with all three of those? They don't really address what's wrong. Right. Right. They're really... None of them are honest, right? Um, beating around the bush, maybe, um, which would be more passive or, you know, just not getting directly to what's going on, right? So the thing that we wanted to, um, what we try to teach at Turning Point is the assertive communication. So assertive is being honest, being direct, 
Um, a lot of people, when they hear assertive, they think, I think they get it confused with aggressive and they think, oh, that's really, I don't want to be mean or I don't want to be disrespectful. And actually assertive communication is not mean and it's quite respectful because you're treating somebody with, you know, you're just being direct and being honest and those kinds of things. I think that people do tend to, you know, take assertion as aggression because it can look like that to people who might be a little gun shy who are typically passive people. Correct. Yeah. And I and I actually tell a story in um, family group that talks that's an illustration from my life. I never used to be assertive. I was always really passive and the whatever person I've gotten much better at it just as I've gotten older, I think more than anything. But one time my husband and I went up to Seattle for a vacation and um, we got into a room that we were right downtown in the hotel and it was a second story room. And I knew we were in trouble when there were earplugs on the nightstand. Yikes. <laughs> I tend to be kind of a light sleeper and my husband can sleep through anything. So I thought, well, you know what? I'll see how it is. I'm not going to go make any judgments at this point. I'll just see how it is. So first night, I was up a lot because there was a convenience store right down in the, and there was a lot of noise coming up and uh, my earplugs were not really working very well. And so the next morning I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go down and talk to the front desk. And I think my husband got a little bit nervous because he thought I was going to be more aggressive, (laughs) even though that's not my style. Mm -hmm. And I just went up to the front desk and I said, hey, um, I'm wondering if there's any way we can change rooms. And he said, she, he said, well, is there a problem with your room? And I said, well, it's just really noisy, you know, right by the convenience store, two stories up. Is there anything up higher or in the back of the hotel or anything? And he actually said, absolutely. Let me look here and we'll try to fix you up. And basically all that, it, all that I did was made a request, stated my need, and waited for the answer, right? And that's basically what assertive communication is. It's stating your need. Sometimes it's an I feel statement. So I didn't really feel the need to go up to the the clerk at the hotel and say, you know, I feel very tired. But um, that's something that if you're speaking to a loved one, it's really important to kind of put those things in there. So that's another really important part of assertive communication is using those I statements. I feel. <laughs> I think I feel statements are wonderful because... It's not about blaming other people right. for how you, it's, this is how I feel. Right. If you, so think of a, a situation where you might be upset with somebody. And if you go up to them and say, you made me feel this way, or you did this and you, 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 it's going to make that other person get pretty defensive. And so it's bound to turn into something a little more heated than maybe you were hoping for. Let's just throw a situation out there. If my husband were going to be late for dinner and he didn't call me and I might be a little upset because he wasn't coming home on time and I'd fixed a nice dinner. When he comes home, I could say, get really upset and really angry and, you know, you didn't call me and dinner's ruined. But if I were to say, hey, when you were late, I felt really disrespected and I would appreciate just a phone call if you're going to be late. Simple as that. And it comes across a completely different way. And it's very solution-oriented, too, which I like. It's not about causing anger and causing frustration. It's about, this is what would be helpful, and Mm -hmm. let's have that conversation around it. 
Yeah. And, and maybe I'm jumping ahead here, so you can just tell me you'll answer this later. But it seems to me that even something as gentle as that and just direct and, hey, just I would appreciate that. For those of us who are locked in an addiction, we tend to just lash out at any kind of – we just take that as an attack. Mm-hmm. I mean, no matter mm-hmm. how gentle it's delivered, it's an attack. Well, why is that? Why do you think that is? Well, <laughs> one of the things that, especially if it's about the use in particular, um, you know, if if I somebody that I talk to that's in recovery, if I'm worried about them, if they're not doing really well, and I say, you're using, aren't you? Or, you know, something along those lines, then of course, even if they're not, they're probably going to get defensive. If they are, which is somebody in active addiction, there's going to definitely be some defensiveness right away, right away. Mm-hmm. It comes across as accusatory and angry, right? So the way you approach somebody can make all the difference in the world. So I would like to ask then, with somebody, it's their their family member, and they feel that way. They're concerned their loved one is using. How should they broach that? Um, I think the best way is just coming from a place of love and concern. You know, more like, hey, I'm really worried about you. These are the things that I'm noticing. You know, is there anything that I can do to help you? Is there, you know, do you need to talk to somebody? Those types of things. Um you'll still might get, you never know what the reaction's going to be, right? You still could get some defensiveness. To me, when there's defensiveness, that's usually a pretty big red flag that there's something going on that they're not wanting to talk about. Intervention. <laughs> we did, yeah, we did deal with that with Chris's intervention. But I think there were also some in a healthy communication that even prior to your intervention that I observed. I don't know if you feel that way. I have no recollection. <laughs> That's the safe <laughs> answer. There wasn't, there wasn't a lot that I have a firm recollection on. I think that's fair. <laughs> you were a little altered. Yes. <laughs> so shifting gears a little bit, when somebody enters treatment and, you know, I feel they come in with poor communication skills, how do you start to break that down and then teach them healthy communication skills. What what does that look like? One of the first things we address is um, the I statements. Um, it's one of our rules that we use in group. Um, and we try to reinforce that in our individual sessions because it's very common for people to use you statements, even if they're not talking about any MND in particular, but just, you know, when you go do this and you feel like this, it's, it really depersonalizes um, how somebody is, some, you know, what somebody's thinking or what somebody's feeling. And so it, we try to say, hey, restate that again in an I statement. You know, well, when I do this, when I do that, and I feel this, it makes it a lot more close to home and people feel it more. So that's one of the first things we do. And also, when you're in a group setting, we need to make sure we're creating safety in the group. And so we don't want people using you statements um, because that can create some defensiveness, like we talked about earlier. Um, it could feel like blaming. Um, and and none of those things are going to um, create a safe environment for anybody. And the same goes with within a family. 
We want to create as much safety as possible so that the person who's maybe struggling with the addiction feels like they can come to their family member and say, hey, I'm, I am struggling, you know, instead of this accusatory blaming thing that we, you know, that happens when those you statements are used. And I want to jump in there because I think it is so important as family loved one, you know, Chris will come to me and he'll say, gosh, I just... I'm having an off day or, you know, I'm just, I was out and about and I really just felt this need to use, you know, that just came, that feeling just came on so strongly. And I think for some people, they're like, oh my gosh, they're going to use now. Mm -hmm. They just Mm -hmm. came and told me how they're feeling. And that means that they're just one step away. But really, that's an honor to me to have Chris say, this is how I'm feeling. And it's frustrating. And I, I trust you enough to tell you that I'm struggling. Well, and I think that's uh, something that, you know, the, the person in recovery or struggling with addiction and you know, trying to get out of it needs to train the people they're going to communicate with on, mm-hmm. you know, when I'm struggling or I need to talk, if, if I'm going to rely on you, you need to be able to handle it. Because if you react poorly, chances are I'm not going to come back to you next time I'm struggling. I'll turn to someone else or if I can't find somebody you know, it could potentially be devastating. So you do need to train people how to communicate with you in a healthy way. Absolutely. And I think some of this is very universal, though. You know, like um, you mentioned the big reaction. You know, if there's a big emotional reaction when somebody tells you something that's really hard to hear, um, they're not going to come back to you again, Mm -hmm. for sure. And so it's about keeping those emotions in check and keeping it a little bit more factual and okay, I'm sorry you're struggling. What can I do to help you? The fact that they're talking about it is amazing. That's actually a really, really good sign, right? Mm -hmm. Because if they weren't talking about it, that's when I'd get a little bit more nervous, you know? Yeah. And Amy's always been really good about it, but you know, right from the beginning, but she also dove into this recovery with me and educated herself on, you know, how to handle me. Well, it was just something I think I learned by attending these groups and reading is, you know, it's so normal after you leave a rehab program to still feel that desire to use, to Mm -hmm. still, you know, want to turn to a substance. Trigger. (laughs) Exactly. In fact, we do the trigger. I don't know if we've ever explained the trigger joke. We should explain the trigger joke really fast. You should explain it because you're better than I, Chris. It's uh, something that uh, one of my housemates actually turned me on to. At uh, any time that he felt a trigger rise, he would say "trigger" out loud, and uh, so I started doing it, and it worked wonders. It diffused it rapidly. I mean, um, people in public sometimes will look at you a little funny. I I think it's fun, and, and typically what happens is it's. If you see something that makes you want to use beer, beer commercials, signs, straws, straws. <laughs> I, don't think I've, I don't think I've ever heard you say trigger to a straw, but sometimes it's almost a game. We'll be watching TV and a commercial comes on. And it's almost like, oh, trigger. I said it first. I win. <laughs> or when we walk through, I can't. Where, where did we go? Uh, have we been in the casino? We did, huh? Oh, we yeah, went to we Mesquite. Did. Yeah, we and did. And the people in the casino thought I had Tourette's. Because I was going, <laughs> trigger, trigger, trigger. 
Because <laughs> the alcohol is just everywhere. Yeah, so it's just become almost a fun game for us to deal with something that's a very serious emotional response in recovery. But laughing for us has been, it's been healthy. So that's how we get through. Yeah. I, th- I think it's great you guys use that coping strategy. I think humor helps a ton in these kinds of situations. Yeah. And there's been plenty of that. But, you know, I'm... I'm kind of a bit of a clown anyway so you know a sentence or two without some humor mixed in there is is unheard of for me but the as far as you know not just the trigger aspect but it is a way for me to when i say trigger maybe she didn't see it or identify it initially that's kind of how it started is that was i could say it and then she'd be okay what's going on and now it gets to the point you know with my mindfulness practice triggers are diffused rapidly they rarely lead to cravings and it is i i honestly have only had gotten beyond craving to an urge to use a handful of times you know since my treatment but when i get to that point i know i can turn to her and you know it's almost the same response every time what's going on let's talk about it there's never a poor reaction on her end and that's big because You know, that's the last thing I want to hear is somebody going, as Dennis would go. (laughs) But I think that's been important because we have had things that we've had to work through in recovery, even after recovery, that have been heavy issues. It's not just been sunshine and lollipops post rehab. It's been having to sit and talk about all right, how are we going to handle this? How do we solve this? That's at least my perspective. Yeah. Yeah, and I, it's not always easy, though, to do, right? I mean, there can be a lot of anxiety surrounding having a difficult conversation. Um, I know one, another thing that I tend to, to talk about, especially with family members, is that there, it's not uncommon to have kind of a walk-on eggshells um, kind of thing, dynamic going on um, with family and the people in recovery, um, the person in recovery will maybe feel like they can't say that they're having triggers or say that they're having any kind of a problem or that they're struggling with something, um, feeling a little anxious or depressed one day um, because they're worried how that might affect the other person, the person that's you know going through this recovery with them. And the, pers- the family member or the loved one might say, oh, I don't want to say anything, ask any questions, or bring up that bill that we need to pay, or those kinds of things, because I don't want to upset this person in recovery, because that might throw them over the edge. I think there is that fear, like, oh, I don't want, I don't want to make them relapse. I don't right. want to, I don't want to contribute to the next downfall of, of some sort. And so what advice do you have for dealing with those tougher conversations? where maybe there's resistance on one side or just trepidation. Yeah, I think, well, I think it goes, a lot of it goes back to that assertive communication, being able to use the I statements. You know, if there's concern, say, you know, I'm like I said, I'm worried about you or for somebody in recovery saying, hey, um, I'm struggling today. And I actually started using uh, what we call as a Likert scale, which um, is like maybe a one to 10 scale on... Um, Anxiety, for example. So say, you know, Chris goes to you, Amy, and says, hey, I'm feeling really anxious today, and I'm not quite sure what's going on. Well, you might automatically think he's at a 10, 
right? And that makes you really nervous. But really, he's like at a five. And so then you can kind of work with that a little bit. It gives a little, it makes it a little bit more objective, um, gets you out of the emotion a little bit and more into the logic, which tends to help a little bit. I like that assigning a, a number, a level to it so that it can be relatable to the other party. Yeah, and it can be used with either side, right? You know, I mean, I'm worried about you. Well, what's your worry? Is it a one or is it a five or is it a seven? Well, it's like a three. Okay. And then it kind of leads into the conversation. You know, what's making you concerned? What's creating that anxiety or that worry? Yeah. And, you know, again, if the person in recovery gets defensive, you might have an issue on your hands. You know, if it's just simple communication that you've been having since they started their recovery and suddenly you find them go, well, I'm just sick of this. I'm going to go down to the soda bar. (laughs) (laughs) So how do we break down defensive walls in a healthy way? Um, That's a really good question. I think, again, a lot of it is, you know, how you approach the people that are in that defensive place. The minute you escalate, the more the walls are going to go up. And so it's about staying calm, staying focused on the actual conversation. And, you know, especially coming from a place of love and concern and, and no judgment. You know, the more you understand the disease of addiction, the, the, the greater um, chance that the judgment won't be there. And so that is a huge piece is, you know, if you are, if you have a loved one struggling with addiction, educate yourself, find out what they're dealing with, because it's not just, why don't you just stop? It just doesn't work that way. Refer to episode five. (laughs) (laughs) I read something just this week and I can't remember the exact metric ascribed to it, but they were, it had inferred that couples that hold hands while they talk through heavy subjects mm-hmm. end up doing better overall in their relationship and resolving things quicker. I thought you were going somewhere completely. <laughs> well, see, they can't slap each other because they're holding no, I wasn't hands. talking you're, slapping. I mean, unless that's your thing. You're actually right, because when you have physical contact with somebody for more than just a few seconds, there actually is a release of oxytocin, which is the bonding chemical, which actually can help create a little bit more of that safety. So the good, good thing. You, I'm glad you brought that up. There's also sometimes a reaction of a of a whistle, a referee's whistle, when you touch somebody for more than a few seconds at a time. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about different communication tactics and approaches. And I think one thing that's really important is to look at the listening aspect, because communication isn't just two people talking at each other. So tell us, Marianne, how can we be better listeners? That's a great question, um, because it is communication is two way and one person always should be listening, right? Um, It's really easy, especially when your emotions are high, and you're getting kind of heated for you. I'll speak for myself for me to maybe get into my head a little bit and try to come up with a retort, you know, instead of really listening to what the other person Mm -hmm. is saying. Um, And that's not working really well, because then I don't hear I'm I'm making some assumptions likely about what they're saying and not hearing exactly what they're saying. So listening, um, we call it active listening when you are really paying attention to what the other person is talking about and not only um, the words, 
but going back again to tone, body language, things like that, because you can pick up so much from those kinds of things. For example, if I'm doing a couples therapy session and the couples are trying to communicate, but I can tell it's maybe getting a little bit heated or something, I might just slow it down and say, okay, hold on just a minute. It feels like not everybody's on the same page. Maybe Chris said something that Amy didn't quite understand and she heard it in a different way. So one really good tool for this is to say, what did you hear me say? If you feel like the person that you're communicating with is not understanding and is getting a little over, uh, getting more agitated, then slow it down. What did you hear me say? And then that person can, can, can repeat back what they heard. And then mm. if it's not quite right, which often it's not because we get lost in translation sometimes, you can re-say it and restate and go from there. I think that's great. And I think that's another thing, too, that this transcends just couples communication. I had an experience. I was at a meeting. And for me, I, you know, I wasn't able to attend the first half. So I went back to my colleagues and that were, you know, critical to that meeting. I said, hey, I just want to repeat back to you what those takeaways were mm-hmm. so that you can validate that I heard everything because I don't want anything to be missed. So I just started to go down the list and say, correct me. You know, let's just stop. Yeah, there was something wrong. And I'm going to go change my notes. And I'll send it out to everybody. Perfect. Yeah. And that's, that's another one of those tactics. It's, it's kind of summarizing what you've heard so that they feel like you're getting what and understand really understanding. The other piece is validation. I think that it's important. Um, If even if the person you're speaking with does not and you're listening to does not specifically state an emotion, it's not sometimes not that hard to figure out what they're feeling. And so even if you just state something along the lines of, you know, I see that you're really upset about this. Um, how does that feel, right? It feels really good to feel like you're being understood. It makes all the difference in the world to know that somebody's understanding me, not just hearing me, but really understanding me. And I think back to what you said about a lot of times when people are talking that, you know, they're they're thinking of what their response is. I have noticed that, you know, as as I've learned a healthier communication style as well as the mindfulness helps me a lot in my communication as well, especially on the listening end. But I I just think it's it's almost it almost feels like it's programmed into people from a young age to start thinking about what your response is going to mm-hmm. be because more than not when I'm having a conversation with somebody they're not really fully engaged. They, they're already thinking about what they're going to say rather than finishing and letting it process. And, and on the other end of that, if you don't get your response out quick enough and you ponder it for a minute, that person might continue talking and then you don't get that chance. And so I, I think that uh, not just people in addiction, I think that we as a human race mm-hmm. uh, have, uh, you know, maybe we never had great communication skills, but... Yeah, these are universal rules that it, the better you can become communicating, I think the more effective in, in your entire life can be. Mm-hmm. You know, the other piece you kind of brought up is interrupting, you know, um, try not to interrupt, you know, wait till the other person's finished. If you're not quite sure, say, are you done? You know, are you ready for my response? Did you say boom? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to throw myself under the bus. I find sometimes I do tend to jump in. And I almost try to help them answer their statement to show them, oh, I'm listening because Mm -hmm. you're about ready to say this. Mm -hmm. And I have to take a step back and go, 
that's really annoying that I do that. And I, and I it's don't always, cute, actually. <laughs> but sometimes I'm like, I'm listening. I'm ready to like insert that word to show you how much I'm listening. But really I'm not because I'm already thinking ahead to how they're going to end you're that making, statement. Yeah. You're making an assumption, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm I always there. throw a different end to a sentence that I think she thinks she's going to get right. So she misses it. <laughs> or sometimes Chris will say, can I please finish? <laughs> yeah, and that's I do okay have to, to do that. And that's okay to do. You know, if you feel like that you're keep you keep getting interrupted, it's okay to say, "Hey, I'm not wasn't quite done." You know, and it, better than storming off and just say, "I'm done with this conversation." Right? Yeah. We want to keep the communication as productive as possible, and sometimes that just takes slowing down, and and it, sometimes it might get to the point where you need to kind of take a time out too. Where you just, and one person, either person can say, you know what, I think we need to just take a break. And it can be, you know, a few minutes or it can be a day. I don't, if you let it go too long, the, the, the um, risk is that it will just get shoved under the rug and not get resolved. Mm-hmm. So what is the best way to take a break? I mean, you alluded that that can, it could almost turn into something passive aggressive mm-hmm. if it just goes without resolution. What is the best time frame? How do you suggest people take a break? I believe that the best time frame is somewhere between 20 minutes and and, and 24 hours. Um, and it could be different for, you know, depending on the conversation, depending on the people that are having the conversation. Um, if it goes really longer than 24 hours, I think that then it, you run the risk of either the resentments just building up even more or it just getting shoved under the rug. So what about that adage, don't go to bed angry? You've probably heard that. I've before. heard that, and I don't think that that's always true. You know, I think sometimes, especially if you're having a conversation late at night, I know for myself, I don't do really well with those. And if I'm too tired, it's not going to go well. And so I have to I have to go to sleep and get some rest. And then typically, I'm actually more clear-headed the next day and can be a little bit more logical instead of so emotional which can can cause some problems better to go bed angry than to go to jail for attempted homicide (laughs) that's true (laughs) that is absolutely true so if you're you're having a heated conversation with your loved one it's late at night um you need to go to bed what's the best way to broach this hey we're both tired let's Take a break, sleep on it. Use I statements. <laughs> I feel that I am tired and I could use some rest. So let's adjourn and speak in the morning or speak at a certain time. Is, yeah. is that a good way to handle it? Absolutely. And it's okay for, you don't both have to necessarily agree. Um, like, for example, um, if one of you is a little bit more like, no, I just need to get this off my chest. I can't do it anymore. Um if one of you calls the timeout, though, it's really in your best interest for both of you to respect that timeout, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and if that means the other person has to go pace a little bit or maybe do some writing to get out some of their feelings. Just don't use. <laughs> use yeah. healthy things while you're on yeah. your break, not unhealthy. Yeah. And just know that you just need to, it's a good time for you just to get a little bit, get those emotions calmed down a little bit and do what you need to do to get the emotions calmed down a little bit to take care of yourself. I'd like to touch on body language and some of those nonverbal cues, because I think we know them, but we may not know them. So maybe we could just kind of label what certain body language posturing looks like and how we interpret that. If you're leaning forward into somebody, that can be kind of threatening, right? 
if you're closed off with arms closed and and legs closed and those kinds of things, like cross legs, then that seems not very approachable, perhaps. Um, facial expressions, you know, that is a huge thing too. If I'm coming up to you and smiling, that's a lot more open and friendly than if I've got a scowl on my face. Um, we talked about the eye rolls and what kind of communication that gives to somebody. Um, tone of voice is huge. Um, you know, if you think of a word, I'm just trying to think of a word. The? <laughs> no, it has to be a, it has to be a word. <laughs> I'll use whatever. Okay. okay. So if you think of a word like whatever, um, if I say whatever, it means something completely different than if I say whatever. That's okay. You know? So tone makes a big, yeah. can make a big difference in how you say something. So what is the best body language to use if you're trying to enter into assertive, healthy communication? Um, open, relaxed, you know, not no arms closed. I think that's, you know, when you fold your arms, when you cross your legs, I think that can be, you know, send a message of, I don't, I'm not really listening to you. Eye contact, super important, right? Checking in with the other person, let them know you're listening. Head nods, those kinds of things. Um, those can really mean a lot um, to the other person who's doing the speaking. Yeah, I think those are the things that come to mind initially. I find there's kind of a couple scenarios where healthy communication could really change and maybe other scenarios where people aren't even aware that they're engaging in healthy communication. What does a communication of enablement sound like? You've got somebody that's enabling or codependent, you know, and that's perpetuating bad behavior and substance abuse. The communication um, can look a lot of different ways when it becomes to enabling. And, and there is kind of this fine line between enabling and supporting. Um, and really... The thing that I tell um, clients is that when you feel that icky feeling inside, then that's probably when you've crossed into a boundary that's not necessarily good. There's some great things about people who <laughs> struggle with codependency, and frankly, I'm one of them. Like I've struggled with that in my life, and I've gotten much better um, at being able to not be as codependent. I do this with my children where I allow... I. I do things for them that they are very capable of doing for themselves. Um, and that doesn't serve them. It keeps them stuck. It keeps them in a place where um, they don't grow and develop and learn the things they need to do. Um, but it also doesn't serve me because I might start getting a little bit resentful about it um, and have some negative feelings towards my children, which I don't want to have. The other thing, sometimes if somebody speaks with you disrespectfully, put up with it a little bit. And if you can hold that boundary and say, you know what, I don't want to, I don't want you to speak to me that way, then it will increase not only your self-respect, the self-respect you feel for yourself, but the respect others have for you. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. I, I think just to kind of sum up where we are, what would you say are the three key takeaways when you are trying to help people with communication? Um, be open and honest with as much as you possibly can with how you're communicating. Um, and open and honest means express how you feel, express what's creating that feeling for you. So it's okay to say when this happens, 
When you do this, this is how I feel. Using I statements is incredibly important. And the third, listening, for sure. Be a good listener. Uh, Learn how to um, be really engaged and pay attention to what the other person is saying. And try not just what they're saying, but try to understand how they're feeling when they're speaking with you. Okay. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for joining us. Um, Before we part, I wanted to read from this handout that I had that I saved from a turning point group that was on communication. And it was adapted and enhanced from the David D. Burns, MD, the Feeling Good Handbook. Burns, eh? (laughs) It says, positive and constructive communication involves clear self-expression and listening. Immature or needy communication involves a refusal to share your feelings openly or listen to what the other person has to say. Becoming argumentative and defensive is one sign of a needy or immature communication style. Great. Nice touch. Mr. Burns. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us, Marianne. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to share your insight as well as everything that you've done for us and Chris's recovery. Yes, thank you very much for all that you've done for me. You're a big part of my recovery, and you'll always be in my heart for that. Thank you. Well, I appreciate that, and it's such a rewarding thing to see you doing so well, and I congratulate on your successful recovery. Thank you. Yeah, I do have a great support system. Good support group. Yeah. Good support. And we try good communication, right? <laughs> so today's uh, we, oh yeah, we're on? doing the song. Yeah. So this Amy picked this one for this uh, round, which I thought was just perfect. Um, so what did you choose to play for this episode? I chose "Communication Breakdown" by Led Zeppelin. so enjoy this is a good song and i think it's fitting to everything that we've discussed today have a great day thanks for tuning in